up to this point in our study through the book of Romans, Paul has shown the universal need for salvation. He's shown the provision of salvation through our Savior Jesus Christ. And he's talked about God's grace and forgiving those who repent and believe. So in chapters 1 through 5, Paul's focus has been on justification. This next section that we're entering into from chapter 6 through chapter 8, he's going to be focusing on sanctification. And God progressively separating believers from sin and making them more like Himself. May you know that justification is the first moment of our sanctification process. That, that moment when we believe and confess in Jesus Christ, when we, when we pass through Christ from death unto life. Sanctification is a step-by-step process when the Holy Spirit works in our lives and conforms us to the image of Jesus. Paul's discussion of sanctification follows this outline over these next three chapters. Chapter 6, there he explains the believers are free from sin's control. So believers are free from sin's control. In chapter 7, he discusses the continuing struggle that believers have with sin. He addresses that struggle that we still deal with. And then in chapter 8, Paul describes how believers can have ultimate victory over sin. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, and that's as far as we'll make it today. In this section, it begins with a question. It's followed by an answer, and then he gives us the explanation. The question is in verse 1. The answer is contained in verse number 2. And then the explanation is given to us from verses 3 through 11. Let's begin with the question. Verse number 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, grace, as a reminder, means God's undeserved favor or unmerited favor. The reality is we just looked at it in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse number 20, Paul said, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I believe it is because of that declaration that Paul realizes that his statement there is going to be misunderstood by many. It would be wrongly interpreted by some. Some would take that statement and suggest that they should just keep on sinning all the more in order to be able to experience more of the grace of God. Their argument goes that if forgiveness is by grace, then is sin not a good thing? If we continue in sin, then God will have more opportunity to prove His grace. More opportunity uh, to be magnified and glorified. So, so the question is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And then the answer is very clearly there in verse number 2. It says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So the answer to the rhetorical question in verse number 1 is a resounding, no, absolutely not. 
So how could it be possible for those who have died to sin to continue to live in sin? Because death separates. Uh, the death of death to sin removes the believer from from the control of sin. Now Paul talks about this in, in some of his other letters as well. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, the first one comes from Galatians chapter three. There in verse number five, he says, "Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity." passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He also writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. Now, we have the question, We see the answer, and now thankfully Paul is going to give us a a detailed explanation that supports his very short answer in verse number 2. So in a series of logical and even sequential principles, he's going to expand from that basic point from verse number 2, that the believer who has died to sin cannot continue to live in sin. Look at verse number three. There he writes and he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and we'll pause right there. There's the first principle. The first principle that Paul spoke of is that by faith, believers have been baptized into Christ. They have been placed in Christ. They have been immersed in Jesus. The believer's position in Christ shows the utter impossibility of a true believer to continue in sin. In verse number 2, the word continue, some of your translations may render it as to still live in. To continue in sin or to still live in sin means uh, that Sin is a, a practice. It means that that individual uh, would habitually yield to sin. And so Paul is saying it's utterly impossible for a true believer to habitually yield into sin. It's, he's not saying that a believer won't sin, but their life isn't characterized by that sin. And so a true believer is dead to sin. Now dead people, they can't do anything. A dead person can't think, can't speak, can't move. And so how can a dead person live any longer in sin? The reality is it's completely impossible. So positionally, a, a true believer has died to self that they've, they've submitted and surrendered their lives unto the Lord Jesus Christ. So positionally, they've died to self. And as a result of that, they've been placed or positioned in Jesus. And they've been placed in Jesus so that they might be able to live for Him. 
So in other words, they have died to self in order that they might be made alive unto God. So the true believer now possesses the divine nature. That old nature is dead. That old nature has been slayed. It's been crucified. And now a true believer has been blessed with a new nature. It's a divine nature. It's God's very own nature. That's why Scripture writes in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, it says, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the, the world by lust. So, you understand that God's grace does not bring a person to God so that they might be set free to sin all the more in their life. No, God's grace brings a person to God so that they might be free from the enslavement and bondage of sin. So that they may, may be set free from the, from the penalty or the judgment of sin. So having been baptized into Christ, we as true believers are united and identified with Him. And so when, when a person truly believes in Jesus, God takes that person's faith and He counts it as the death of His Son. So that is, God counts the person as having died in Jesus. God counts the person as having participated in the death of our Savior. And so, when a true believer experiences a water baptism, right? The water baptism, they're proclaiming to the world their identification with the Savior. So, so by being placed under the water, when we lower somebody in the water in water baptism, we're symbolizing their death to their old nature, that old self. They, they've been lowered, they've been buried, they've been placed in the tomb. They've died and has been buried with Christ. But there's another aspect to that water baptism. It's not just the lowering of that old self symbolizing the death to that old nature. It's the raising of that person out of the water that symbolizes the resurrection of our Lord. And then we're commanded to walk in a newness of life. That's the glorious blessing. Water baptism is merely a physical representation of a spiritual reality. So the second principle that Paul gives to us is really an extension of the first. True believers are not only identified with Christ, they are identified with Him specifically through His death and His resurrection. Again, verse 3. Or do you not know... So here, uh, Paul is pointing out something that should be obvious to believers. He says, do you not know... That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. I want you to think about that just for a moment, right? Since the believer is counted by God as having been immersed in the death of Jesus, then the believer has died to sin. The believer has died to the penalty of sin, to the judgment of sin. The believer has been set free. Free from sin's habits. Free from sin's control. Free from the bondage and the enslavement of sin. Free from the condemnation and wrath of God that will be poured out against sin. God takes the person's faith and counts that person as having participated, not just being immersed in Jesus, but having participated in the death and the resurrection of our Lord. In verse 4, it says, Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Don't you understand that the glory of the Father, that phrase that really kind of captures all of the excellencies of God, all that He is in power and might, all that He is in, in, in love and in, in grace, all that He is in compassion, and mercy. It includes all of His divine attributes. To namely, to really break down here this morning, but all the things like His omniscience, His all-knowing, His omnipresence, His being everywhere, His omnipotence, His all-power. It includes His sovereignty in and through all things. But in this particular passage, I believe that the glory of the Father refers primarily to His glorious power. It was the glory of His power and His might that raised Jesus from the dead. And it is by the glory of His power and might that He has placed and positioned those who believe in His Son. So verse 4 closes with, so that... Uh, so we too might walk in the newness of life. That word walk is an interesting word. Because walk signifies progress. It's not so that we might sit in the newness of life. With sitting people don't go anywhere. They're, they're stationary. there's no movement, there's no progress in their life. He says that we might walk in newness of life. That we might walk step by by step. That that we might walk in a control and orderly way. That, That we might constantly and habitually walk in this newness of life that we've been given. I love that word new because in the Bible, new often carries the idea of purity, of righteousness, holiness, godliness. I mean, just think about how new we've been made when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
So many points happen for the believer. First Peter chapter one, verse number 23 tells us that we receive a new birth. And there it says, for you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. So the believer receives a new birth. Uh, they receive a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 11 says, And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of the flesh and give them a heart of flesh. You get a new heart. The believer receives a new spirit. Ezekiel chapter 18. Cast away from all of your transgressions which you have committed and, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And ultimately, a believer becomes a new creature. Second Corinthians chapter 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A believer becomes a, a new man. Colossians chapter 3 says, Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside this old self with its evil practices, and have put on a new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the One who created Him. God's very purpose for placing us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so that we might walk in Christ. That, that we might walk sober, soberly, righteously. That we might walk godly in this present world. That our walk might actually be a reflection of the new nature to which we've been given. Now, quickly, this third principle. Third principle is found in verses 6 and 7. Here Paul stresses that the old sinful self, that old nature, has been killed. Verse 6, knowing this, again Paul is making his appeal to, to people who should know, who should already be aware of the truth that he's about to declare. So it's a reminder. He says that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For He who has died is freed from sin. Paul's saying that in Christ, you're not the same people that you were before you received the salvation that He blessed you with. In Christ, you have a new life. You have a new heart. You have a new hope. You have a new purpose. You have a brand new destiny. You have countless other new things in life. These things that didn't exist before you submitted and surrendered yourself unto the Lord. So therefore, therefore that old nature, uh, the, the, those old hopes, those old purposes that you once pursued, that old life, that old destiny is dead. It's gone. You've been blessed with something new, something glorious, something beautiful. And so when Christ redeemed us, our old self was crucified, killed, 
destroyed. The Greek text uses the past tense here to describe this. It says our old self was crucified with Him. It means that this is a, 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 a once and for all act that Jesus Christ Himself effected. It means that this old self, this old life, that old sinful self, the old corrupt nature, that depraved nature, that unregenerated nature, that, that sinful nature, that old self means our old life without God. That old life, when we believe in Jesus, that old life was crucified so that the body of sin may be destroyed in your life. So it, it is true that as believers, we find, find ourselves confronted with multiple opportunities and occasions for sin. As believers, every waking moment, we are tempted between righteousness and unrighteousness. Between godliness and ungodliness. So we still face it. And Paul's going to unpack more of this in the chapters to come. But there's a beautiful thing that God does for us in the midst of all of those temptations every single time. The Word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says that no temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure it. So, I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Sooner or later, most often it seems like it's sooner, but sooner or later we give in to temptation and we give in to sin. But, but here, hear me out here. If we were to take every temptation in isolation from all of the rest, if we were to look at every single temptation that we have been faced with, and if we would just consider them one at a time, then we could never look at any given moment that we've been tempted. We can never look at a particular temptation that we've given into we can never look at any of them and say, well, I just couldn't help it. It wasn't my fault. The devil made me do it. No, we can never say that we didn't have the power and the grace to resist that temptation because the Word of God says that in the midst of all of it, God is faithful every single time. Now, as believers, we have the faithfulness of God to rest and rely ourselves upon. And so that we can know when we're faced with that temptation, then all we have to do is to take our eyes off of what we're being tempted by and begin to look for the escape route that God has graciously and generously provided for us every single time. I think if we're honest, though, we, we, we stay focused on that temptation we let that look linger way too long. 
We forget to remind ourselves about how God is faithful to provide that way of escape for us. The power is there. When tempted, the power is there. The grace is there. Because God faithfully provides the way of escape so that we don't ever have to give in to temptation. Now the fourth and final principle is that believers shall live with Christ both now and forever. Both now. It's a present reality as well as a future reality. Verse 8 says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so we know and we possess absolute assurance and confidence that we shall live with Christ. The, the, the idea is that we shall also live with Him. Think about it. Jesus has already died. He's already conquered death once and for all. And so now we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Now we know that death no longer is master over Him. Now we know that He has conquered death through the power of His resurrection. Which means that Christ died unto sin once. That He now lives in the presence of God forever. And according to verse number 10, He lives to God. That is, He he lives in an unbroken devotion and service to God. That's what that means. To, To live to God means to live in an unbroken service and devotion to God. So if you've repented and believe in Jesus Christ yourself, if you've submitted and surrendered your life unto Him, then you too are to live to God for all eternity. So from the moment of your conversion, God looks at you as though you have been baptized or immersed in Jesus Christ. That, That you have been placed in His death and in His resurrection. That old sinful self has been crucified. Death no longer has dominion over your life. You're now an eternal person. Let that sink in. You've stepped over from death unto life. Eternal life. And so we're to live unto God ourselves. Which means that we too are to live with an unbroken devotion in service to God. And we're to do that now. It's not something that we start once we get to heaven, provided you are going there. No, it's something that we live out right here, right now. 
we should be living our lives as though we are in heaven. With that type of commitment. With, with that type of devotion. That, with that type of awe and awareness of, of the holiness and the, the, the magnificence of God. And if we would think that way, if we begin to conduct our lives that way, then you're going to see something wonderful happening in your life. You're going to begin to see that your taste or your desire for sin will gradually begin to go away. Oh, you'll never have complete victory over sin until death and glorification comes. But we can surely have more victory now. As believers, we're to submit and surrender every aspect of our lives unto Christ. If He's our Lord, then that's exactly what that means. He's our Master. We're His slave. And we will do this what we started in the very beginning, Romans 1.1. We're His slave. That our desire is to do the will of our Master. That we exist for the sole purpose of our Master's service to our Master. As children of God, that's what should drive us. Our service and devotion unto the King of Kings. Now next week, we'll, we'll pick up in verse number 12. We won't make it very far next week. We'll make it through verse 12 and 13. I think we'll stop there for next week. And we'll take our time. We'll, three weeks and we'll, we'll, we'll work through chapter 6. We've got to understand, like, what... What Paul is trying to get us to understand is that this sanctification process that happens in the life of the believer is something that we should celebrate. It's something that we should seek to build up in us so that we can put greater distance in our lives from one sin to another. And people don't like to hear this a lot. But I'll say it one last time. You know what? We'll read it one last time. We'll let the Word of God say it so you don't have to misunderstand me. But the Word of God says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slave to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, 
he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then the preview next week. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And then do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, ah, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Oh, I can't wait for next week. I have that sermon written. We're a little bit early. We might, no. We'll pause there. I'm going to ask our worship team to make their way back up here. In fact, we changed it up a little bit, so follow us there on the back if you don't know already. I want us to sing one more song, uh, one more time, the song that we sang right before the message. It's called I Am Redeemed. Now, I think as you see and hear and sing the lyrics of this song, and hopefully it will make a little bit better understanding and maybe bring about a little bit more conviction in our hearts and in our lives. And so as we sing, may you know that we are here to pray with you or to encourage you in any way. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love for your grace, for your mercy. And God, for those of us that believe, may we be instruments of your love, grace, and mercy in this wicked and depraved world in which we reside. May we live now with the complete awareness of your glory and of your power, of your might, of your majesty, May we not wait to get to heaven before we fully worship who you are. Father, may we live our lives of complete service and devotion to you right here, right now. May your spirit move among us, guiding and convicting us. May our response bring glory unto you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.